through some statistics here in a few minutes that really counter, counter, contradict that. And, that's, and they were, these, are, these are nationwide studies that have been done several years ago. But the bottom line here is, is I just I want us to understand every one of you can share your faith. Most of the, I mean, it's sad to me when I see and meet people that have been Christians for 40 years and they've never taken the opportunity to share the gospel. You've got neighbors around you that don't know Christ. I mean, and I'm not talking about them going to church. Have you had a conversation with them about what it means to be born again, about what it means, means to come to Christ. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the way and we truly believe that that is what is most important, then why are we not telling people about that? Guys, we, we can sit around and complain and gripe all we want to about our culture. But let me just say this to you. What happens in Washington is not going to change our culture. What happens in Richmond is not going to change our culture. I believe it starts in the church. And for that to happen in the church, we in the church have got to get over ourselves long enough to stop worrying about our feelings and start worrying about the gospel. And start, stop worrying about, well, what if I get rejected? They're not going to reject you. Guys, I've been doing this 40 years. I told them this, this weekend, the first time I ever shared my faith was I was 17 years old. I was at a, at a, a youth event, and my youth pastor, he told us, he gave us a, a Roman's road that I still have stuck in one of my Bibles at home. And, and uh, he, he said, basically, don't come back next week unless you share this with someone. So that Sunday, when, excuse me, that Tuesday after that, I had a girl over at my house. I was so happy about that. <laughs> you know, and she was over and we were playing basketball outside and shooting basketball and stuff. And I was trying to get to know her better and all these kind of things. And right in the middle of that, God just interrupted it. And he said, David, why don't you share the gospel with her? And, and you know, I, I'm over there going, God, this is not a good time. I don't really know her well enough to do that. And God, I mean, this is, I mean, I got a girl in my yard. God, I don't want to blow it. You know what I mean? And the Lord, so I, what I did was I do what all of us do. I, I chickened out and I asked the wimpy question, which is, you go to church, right? Guys, don't talk to people about church. Talk to them about Jesus. Church don't save anybody. Jesus does. Amen. It's the truth. Asking people to go to church is not evangelism. Okay? It's not. We got to tell them why this is important. And so she looked at me and she said, no, I don't go to church anymore. I thought, man, what do I do now? God said, share the gospel. And I said, so I did the second most wimpiest thing, hoping she would say no to this, yes to this, so that I wouldn't have to say anything else. I looked at her and I said, well, you're a Christian, right? And she looked at me and she said, not that I know of. And I went, oh, man, what am I going to do? And God said, what? Share the gospel. So I invited her inside my house. We didn't, we didn't sit down on my floor in my room. My mom was right down the hall. I took out my Bible. I'd never done this in my life, didn't know the difference between Revelation and Romans, and I proceeded for the next 30 minutes to stumble through the worst presentation of the gospel since the beginning of time. Literally, uh, 25 minutes into it, I was thinking to myself, I should get saved tonight, you know what I mean? I, I, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I mean, I was confused completely. I'm not making this up. My, my, my mom can tell you this is the truth. And so I finally looked at her and I, says, I said, do you have a clue what I'm talking about? Do you understand what I'm talking about? And she looked at me and she said, well, I think what you're saying is, according to the Bible, is that I'm a sinner separated from God and I need a relationship with Jesus. I need to repent of my sin and receive Christ in my life in order so I can have a relationship with him here now and so that I can be with him forever in heaven when I die. I looked at her and I said, who told you that? <laughs> who told her that, by the way? Holy Spirit did. Holy Spirit did. Guys, make sure, understand this. By the way, I married that girl six years later, okay? I am not advocating missionary dating whatsoever. <laughs> I'm just saying that's what happened in my case, okay? And Debbie and I will celebrate 36 years of marriage here in a few weeks. 
And hopefully we'll celebrate our second grandson this week, okay? But anyway, bottom line here is this, is that the only thing God cannot use, he can use our babbling, he can use our mistakes, he can use us jumping over words. Paul said to himself, he said, you know, I was, I was this, I wasn't a real good speaker. In fact, most scholars believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh could have been you know, stuttering. What God's saying is, I can use anything, but what I can't use is your silence. So guys, if we really mean for the world to be changed, the church has got to stop being silent. Look at your neighbor and say, he's right. <laughs> if I'm not right, the word's right. Acts chapter 4, what does he say? You got, Jay, you got uh, uh, Peter and John and what do they say? They say, as for us, we will not stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. The church has long since stopped speaking and started griping, and that's why the world's in the mess it's in. It's the truth. You can buy all the locks for your doors you want to. It ain't going to make it more safer in a world like this. It's not going to do it. It's the gospel that changes people's lives. So open your Bible up to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. We're just going to kind of walk through this today, next few minutes. And I just want to challenge you. These are the famous last words of Christ. This is right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And if you knew you had a few minutes to live. Yesterday I had a conversation with my best friend in the world he's for 35 years. And he's, he's, and he's in stage four prostate cancer. And he's, he was hoping to get into a, a special study. I wish you'd pray for Carl. You, you think about it, pray for Carl. And his numbers are just too low. He can't get into it. And yesterday on the phone, he just cried to me. You know, and he's facing probably, unless God intervenes, the last few months of his life. You know, you just imagine, I'm going to probably drive down there in a couple of weeks and just spend a couple of days with him. If you were in that situation, and you're looking at your family and people you love, what would your last words be? Would you consider those important words? Yeah. You know what, I, I, I'm serious. I, I don't think my last words will be discussing the upcoming football draft or, you know, I've been a Tennessee fan all my life and for the last nine years it's been total tor terrible. And, and I, I don't think I'd worry about whether they have a good season this year. I don't think I'd worry about any of that kind of stuff. I doubt very seriously we would talk about anything, you know, about the weather or anything like that. How's that weather outside if I got 30 minutes to live, right? Who cares? Wouldn't you think the last words you would speak would be the most important words of your life? So what did Jesus do? He chose these specific words. He didn't say, now that I'm going to heaven, make sure you go to church and build good buildings. That's not what he said. He had, a, he had said anything he wanted to. He's the creator of the universe. But these are the words he chose directly to us. He said them directly to the disciples, and we read them today directly to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand what it is, okay? You see, let's consider the church today. This is just one picture. This is a church about three miles from Liberty's campus. This is where we've become. I, I drove by this church a while back, and they still got the sign out there, by the way. And Debbie and I drove by, and I looked there, and I said, Debbie, is that, did that church have a posted no trespassing sign out front of it? She said, I believe it did. So we went back and drove, and we took pictures of this. I'm going to put this in a book sometime, I know. Because that's just stupid. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on, who would do that? 
And by the way, they had one on, I mean, I'm, I get to use the pointer, and I'm ADD, I love using these, these laser things, this is so cool. <laughs> they have one on that side of the park, ooh, it's red too, I like that. They have one on this side of the parking lot, and they have one down in front of the parsonage, which would have been down there, by the way, <laughs> okay? And so, I mean, think about it. Why would we put a sign out in front of a church like that? Because the world cares, we care more about ourselves than we do the world. How about this one? No trespassing, church activities only. What does that say to the world? It says, it says, you're not welcome here. And by the way, there's another church in, in Lynchburg who has this same sign out in front of it. And I haven't been able to get a picture of it yet. But right under here, it says, violators will be prosecuted. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's what it says. And I'm, I want you to imagine for a moment. You're living in that house right over there, okay? Or right over there, whichever one you're looking at. You're living in that house. It's Christmas morning. Your child is five years old and gets their first bicycle, okay? And, you, and, you know, and you're thinking, where can I take my child at? It's 60 degrees on, on Christmas. You're thinking, i got to have a big piece of asphalt where they can go drive. And you look across the street, and it's their church parking lot. So you take your child out there. They're riding around. They're having a great time. And you're taking pictures and putting on Instagram, sending it to everybody in the world, saying, look what our child got. Isn't he great, man? This is tremendous. And all of a sudden, the SWAT team shows up. <laughs> they take you off to jail. They take your child off to juvie. It just messes Christmas up, right? Because who would do that? Yeah. Who would do that? I mean, I mean, seriously. Think about it. This, this came from a friend of mine in, in, in North Carolina. He, um, he went to the church. He went to the church in, in, uh, in inner city of Columbia, I mean, uh, uh, Charlotte and took over a church. And they were running a couple hundred, but nobody in the community went to that church. Everybody drove from someplace else. So when he got there, he found all these young families in the community. So he decided... That, that, hey, let's reach these young families. So he started changing things around, changed the worship style, changed some different things like that. The first year he was there, with his great spiritual abilities of growth, the church went from 200 down to 100. The next six months, it went from 100 down to 50. He, changed, he took the Sunday nights and started making to reach those young families, to help those families grow. And everybody started leaving. He said, finally, when one of the ladies in the church who had been there forever walks up to him and says, Pastor, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you think this church is a movement of God to change the world, while we believe this church should be a community organization for Christians. And which one is it? It's not both, guys. It's number one, not number two, right? But we act like it's number two. You parked in my spot out there. I parked there for years. You sat in my seat. I bet you, right now, if I had you, I did this in church one time. I had people stand up and walk across. I had a lady walk right out the back door. Said, if I can't sit where I want to, I'll just leave. I said, well, there's a diaper changing station out there. I want you to get those changed while you leave too. Because <laughs> the biggest babies in the church sometimes aren't sitting in the, in the nursery. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm serious. It's just, it blows me away that we're so caught up in what we want. And, and we've, we forgot about it. Our call is not to make us happy or comfortable. It's to reach the world with the gospel. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's what we're supposed to be about. You see, going forward, we must move from being inclusive of just Christians and exclusive of the world to becoming inclusive of everyone in relation to their essential need of salvation. So what does that mean? That means if we're going to become fishermen, fishers of men, we must be willing to what? Get wet. We've so sanitized the church that we don't, we're not, we're not going to get wet anymore. We can write a check so that we don't have to go actually do it. And that was never what it was meant to be. 
He's called us to be disciples of Christ. He's put every one of you in a neighborhood where he means for you to be missionaries there. Not just occupants, but missionaries. He's put you there to do that. And the sad part about it is, when I talk to my students, my, 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 uh, my, my, my uh, master students so often, they don't have a clue what their neighbor's names are. They, 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 if they know them, they don't know their spiritual condition. If you ask them to do that, I mean, do you know your neighbor's spiritual condition? You know the people at work, their spiritual condition. Have you had a conversation with them about Jesus, what's most important? You know what I found out over the years as a pastor, I've been ministry 40 years, I found out that what people talk about is what's most important to them. If you're not talking about Jesus, don't tell me he's most important to you. It's just the truth, guys. Well, my neighbors would never listen to you. I promise you would. We baptized four of our neighbors where we were living before. And we've done this just about every place we've gone. Because my wife has a spiritual gift of service and mercy. And service is not to go hide. Hey, listen, if you're going to think your spiritual gift of service so you can hide in the kitchen on Wednesday nights and cook for a neighborhood, cook for people at church while you don't cook for your own neighbors, that's not it. God's going to give you that spiritual gift of service to do what? To glorify God and make his name known. Which means we've got to start cooking for our neighbors. So my wife, we moved in our neighborhood. My wife's been on off chemo for, for 22 of the last 28 years. My wife has a real rare disease, had five joint replacements. And right in the middle of all this, here's what my wife does. She goes over and starts loving on her neighbors, finds out that they need people picking up their kids at school each day. So my wife would go pick up their kids at school. She'd get to know them. The first thing that happened was, two years into this, of serving them, share her sharing the gospel, I get to baptize their son, Ben. A year later, I get to baptize their daughter, Savannah. Two years later, I get to baptize the dad, Mike, a, a police officer there in Lynchburg. And, a, and a, a, a young man on the other side of us, an African young man on the other side of us, I got to baptize him the same day I baptized Ben. Why? Because one very ill lady said, God, how could you use me to reach this community? Guys, our homes were never meant to be bunkers. They were mission, meant to be lighthouses. Places in which we go out and be missionaries. That's what it's meant to be. See, think about it. it, it we've got to get wet. We've got to dive in. People's lives are messy. But we've got to be willing to get wet. Accepting people the way they are is not the same as condoning their sin. Meaning as we go... Just because people mess up, we've all sinned, right? Every one of us are sinners, right? Who, do we, who are we to look down our noses and say that someone else is a worse sinner than us? Paul said he was the worst sinner of all. Guys, accepting people, walking across the street to that family across the street that's struggling, that's addicted or going through this or that or other, and loving them and caring for them, and then showing them that they can be, they can be reborn through Christ and they can be delivered through Christ. We don't have to condone the sin, but we sure have to love the person. None of us have a right to look down and point a finger. None of us. Because right now, if a big video came up here exposing every one of our lives, we'd have a whole lot of embarrassed people, wouldn't we? Because we all have dirty laundry, don't we? The problem is the church acts like it don't. And the truth is you've got a whole world out there with dirty laundry thinking that nobody can help them. And here we are redeemed, having get, got over that dirty laundry, and we're too, too embarrassed to actually tell people we actually had it. Guys, what we got to do is, is, is tell them. Go tell our stories to them. Tell them what's happening. Tell them how, how God delivered us from them. Share with them. Be honest. Be vulnerable with people. This is a generation that wants you to be authentic and real. Tell them what it is. All right? So here's the scripture. Acts chapter 1 6 to, uh, 6 to 11, it simply says, So when they had come together, 
They were asking him, that is Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore him the kingdom of heaven? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world, the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, and they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their out of his sight. And as they were gazing intently under the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way in which you have watched him go into heaven. So what I want us to do is take them this morning, just take a little bit of time, and just answer some questions. First of all, first of all, it, it, what was Jesus all about? Well, it's real simple. If you look at it, verses 6 and 7, what Jesus was not about. What was he all about? He was not about what? Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of heaven? What Jesus was not about, he was not about us being about ourselves. You see, the disciples were so consumed with themselves. You know, they had a what's in it for me kind of mentality. Come on, Jesus. You know, what's in it for us? We've been following you all this time. When are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven here so that we can sit with you and everybody can look at us and see that we were right all along? Because it's like, like we, 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 it's kind of a contrast to what we do. You know, it's like, Jesus, come on, you kind of owe this to me, man. I've been doing this all my life. I remember sharing the gospel one day with a guy when I was in Indianapolis. I knocked on his door. And when I knocked on his door, I asked him, I said, sir, if you were standing before God right now, he, he, he would ask you, why should I let you to my heaven? What would you say? He said, well, I'd tell him he better let me into heaven for all the things I've done for him. I backed out because I knew lightning was coming. And I didn't want it to hit me too. But guys, I, I got to thinking, I've treated God like that a whole lot. I've acted that way like I expect God owes me something. We forget the mercy and grace that it took. That we are totally hopeless and helpless without Jesus. We don't like to feel that way, but that's exactly who we are. That without him, we would have no hope. Guys, the only dignity we have is what he gives us. That's what it is. So what it's not about, what it's not about, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about us. So, what was important to Jesus? Well, the purpose our purpose in the church is to glorify God in all things. Would you agree with that, yes or no? So what's the mission? The mission of the church is what? To make his name known by doing what? To join Christ on mission by doing what? Daily living out the great commandment and daily living out the great commission. By living out daily the great, commitment, the great commission and the great commandment. So let's, let's look at those. Here they are, right here. The great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, everything, and to love your What? You're who? As? Isn't it interesting? Here's what we've done in our, in our oppressized world over the last 40 years. Here's what we've done in our new age world. We've, we've turned that on its head. You see, we love each other. We love ourselves so much, we barely have time to love God and no time to love our neighbor. Did you hear that? We've made it all about us. So it's true, it's true guys. It's, we've made it all about us. You know, you know why we have griping and complaining in churches all the time? Because people are so concerned about their needs more than the needs out there. Here's what I found. I found if you get people out there sharing the gospel, serving people, getting, their, getting wet all the time, all they're worried about is getting, reaching more people and getting them out of the water. It's the, the people who gripe all the time, the people aren't doing much. 
Because they're more worried about church constitutions than they are commitment. They're more worried about my knee. You, you've offended me. Guys, we live in a world, man, I, goodness gracious, we get offended so easily, don't we? What were you really saying there? Well, I, I was saying, uh, I like your hair. What do you mean, like? It's nice. <laughs> well, don't say that again. Well, I won't, I promise you. <laughs> I mean, seriously, don't we get so offended? And churches do the same thing. I've been doing this a long time. I wish I had all day I could just share with you stupid stories that come out of church. I don't, because that's not what this is about today. But guys, what it is about is loving, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor, and putting us under them. If we would think about it in that process, by loving God and then seeing the need of our neighbors all around this community, and loving them enough to actually put ourselves aside to sacrifice to reach them, we would see ourselves totally different too. Do you know the happiest people I know are people that practice gratitude every day? They're people that, 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 people that aren't selfish. They aren't caught up in themselves. That's what it is. You know, the most miserable people, miserable people are that. And think about it. The root word for miserable is miser. All they ever do is think about themselves. The Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even in the days. People say, well, the purpose of the, the Great Commission is to make disciples, not do evangelism. Guys, that's ridiculous. How are you going to have disciples if you don't evangelize? The purpose of the Great Commission of discipleship is to take the evangelized and help them become evangelizers. For instance, you know, that's what the point of this is, to, to, to have them follow all the commandments I give you, he says, to make disciples. If you're not reaching people the gospel, how can you make disciples? And the point of that is multiplication, not addition. What we've done in our culture is we pay for staff to do the work of the people. But in reality, the people are supposed to be doing the work as the staff goes with them because the purpose of your staff and church, your pastor, is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. All of us are supposed to be ministers everywhere we go. So, look at this. This is a study that was done about 10 years ago. I just thought I'd kind of throw this up here. I think Christianity today is more about organized religion than loving God and loving people. Look at that. 79% of the people say that we are blowing the great commandment. When they look at us, they don't see us loving them because we go in and shut our doors all the time and don't care for them. We know they're hurting and we may say, oh, I'm going to pray for you. That's sympathy. The Bible doesn't teach sympathy. It teaches empathy. Empathy means if they need something, I go do it and help them with it. Sympathy is, I'll pray for your need. You know what you're going to Empathy is, I'll go mow your grass. I'll take care of you. I'll help you do this. If we would start practicing empathy as Christians, we would see a, a great, great, great response from that, I promise you. The church is full of hypocrites, people who criticize others for doing the same thing themselves. Look at that. 72% said, yeah, 7 out of 10 people said, that's who we are. That's the way the world sees the church. So, here's what I want us to do. It's very simple. Just ask four questions. I want us to do it. How can we do this? Real quick, we're going to run through this. Four questions. Number one, where do I get the boldness to share my faith? Look what it says. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word there for power is we get the word dynamite from. He's saying, you, I'm going to give you the power. Let me ask you right now, how many of you in this church, show by raising up both your hands up when I say this. We're going to be charismatic here for a moment, okay? You can even wave them back and forth if you want to, all right? You can say hallelujah if you want to. How many of y'all in this church believe in the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand up, all your hands up. Okay, now look around, all those people around you. Okay, keep your hands up for a second. 
How many of y'all believe that the Holy Spirit can actually use you to share your faith? Keep your hands up. Then why aren't we doing it? Put your hands down. What does he say? He says, I'm not going to make you alone. When I share with my, wife, my future wife the first time, it wasn't me speaking. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through me. Do you trust that the Holy Spirit could actually speak through you? Yes or no? Does it? Come on, let's be honest. How many of us, it kind of scares us to think about that? Let's be honest. Guys, I've been doing this 40-something years. And I'm telling you right now, there are many times I still share my faith today that inside of me I get the same butterflies, the same fear, because all those kind of things, because it's spiritual warfare. Remember, it's spiritual warfare. We have a responsibility to share the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can draw them to himself, but we have a responsibility to take the gospel to them. But you shall receive power when who comes upon you? Big H, big S, Holy Spirit, right? That's God in us. He can help you overcome any fear you have. If we, it's, it's one thing to say, I believe the Holy Spirit can do that, and actually doing it. It's another thing to say, I believe the Holy Spirit can do that and not do it. Because if we, if we really say we believe he can, but then we don't practice it, what we're really saying is, I, I don't believe him. So either we believe him and practice it, or we don't believe him at all. Guys, there's no sense of being fearful. Every one of you here has a story. What I've been doing, in my, I'm interim pastor Highland Heights Baptist Church right now, outside of Lynchburg. And for the last three months, we've been taking every Sunday morning, have a different church member do a video, a two-minute video of sharing their testimony. And I've been challenging the church, tell your story, go tell your story. With someone new each week, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. What was your life like before Christ? How did you come to Christ? What's your life been like since then? Tell your story, write it down, tell your story. Man, it's, it's been phenomenal watching our church starting to branch out. People putting it on Facebook, sending it out, and videos, just, just doing this. Because and I've had so many of them say, well, there's just no way I could ever tell my story. Yes, you can. It's your story, it's not my story. You have a story, go tell it. Tell others what Christ has done for you. Don't talk to them about church, talk to them about Jesus. Tell them what's happened. Face it, guys, you can't share Christ, but God can through you, through the Holy Spirit who resides in you. So where do I go um, do this? Where? Do I get the boldness? I get the boldness from the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at your neighbor and say, I get the boldness of the power of the Holy Spirit. Come on. Look at this. This is the same study. It says, I have at least one close friend. Catch this. I have at least one close friend who considers himself or herself a Christian. 89% of the recipient of the people who responded to this said, said, yes, I have a close friend who calls himself a Christian. Look at this. Christians I know talk to me about their beliefs too often. Look at that. 71% said no. So eight out of, nine out of 10 say, I've got a close friend who calls himself a Christian. Seven out of 10 say they never talk to me. Now get this. I, I, if someone wanted to tell me what he or she believed about Christianity, I'd be willing to listen. Look at that, 78%. So four out of five people say I'd be willing to listen, have a conversation about that. Nine out of ten say I've already got a Christian in my life, but seven out of ten say they never talked to me about it. Look at this one. I would be on, I'd like to have an honest conversation about religious and spiritual beliefs, even if we disagree. The same 78% responded. You see, we as Christians have committed, have convinced ourselves nobody wants to listen to. Our world's just so evil. Listen, the people that are your neighbors around you, the reason why they're acting the way they do is because they got an emptiness in their soul. They're trying to medicate and fill up with something else. They're hurting the same way we are hurting, and they need the same feeling of the Spirit we have. They need what you have so they can be healed. We need to tell them that. We need to tell them that. We need to go and have those conversations. 
I've tried to have the conversations. They, they won't talk to us anymore. Then go start serving them, mowing the grass, rake their leaves. Man, this fall, when this starts, leaves starts falling, this whole church ought to be out in this community raking every yard you possibly can. You know, and, the, and those of you who can't go, go bake cookies and take them to them. When you go home this afternoon, my wife makes apple dumplings. Man, there's going to be all kinds of people in heaven because we have conversations over apple dumplings. We deliver them to our neighbors. I want one guy said, man, this like, tastes like heaven in a bowl. I said, well, heaven's even better than that, trust me. Guys, just look what you can do in your neighborhood. When you go shopping at the grocery store, my wife has made three, three double chocolate chip pound cakes in the last three days. Oh, gosh. You ever had one of those? I'm ADD, by the way. I'm distracted right now. You put a thing in a microwave and put some vanilla ice cream over it. Oh, gosh. Ugh. I forgot the rest of my sermon. <laughs> anyway, it's so good. You know, we, we have all kinds of neighbors. Debbie will cook for like that. We have those conversations. My neighbor next to me on the one side, Robert, had his liver replaced. Has, had a, has, had a, a, a new liver put in him. And, and we're having a friend day the next month, so we've been having conversations with Robert for a while. And that other side, I have a Chinese family. Well, they, they, they moved in our community, and the HOA was going to get them because their yard got way too high. So some of us guys went together and paid to bring someone in and mow the grass so we could start having conversations with them. Rather than griping and calling your HOA, why don't you do something about it? I don't know if sure I won't. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. We, we gripe because... You know, those people down the street play their music too loud. Well, you know the way, best way to make them turn that down is reach them with the gospel. Then the music probably will change some. Rather than getting mad at those folks, realize God's bringing the harvest to us. I had a lady the other day write me in class. She said, Dr. Wheeler, I'm not going to do this anymore, witnessing anymore. She lives in San Francisco. She said, you just don't know how hard it is out here, all this. She said, next witnessing report I'll do, I'm going to drive two or three hours south of here and share with somebody else. I said, ma'am. God loves you so much, he puts you in one of the most fertile fishing holes in the world. If you're a fisherman, you want to go where fish are, right? Right? Well, any of us praying, God, I want to catch fish today, so take me where there's no fish at all, right? That would just be dumb, right? No. The fish are coming to us now, guys. Why are we running to other ponds where there's no fish? Why are we doing that? I don't, I don't get it. Number two. Why should I share my faith? Because it's a command of Scripture. It, 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 come on, think about this. Sin is breaking God's command, right? It's a command of Scripture. He says, you shall be my witnesses. The way it's written in the Greek, it is an imperative. You will be my witnesses. And the word there for witness is, again, the word mart martyrs, where we get the word martyr from. It's written 38 times in the book of Acts. It is the theme of the book of Acts. In other words, Jesus told his disciples, I know I'm giving you a death sentence, and chances are you're probably going to end up dying for your faith. Well, I'm going to tell you what I tell my students all the time. If you're not willing to die for your faith, you probably won't live for your faith. The problem is we, we want to practice a faith. We don't want to have to actually do anything with it. We want to be comfortable. We want to sing, bring it in the sheaves and feel good about it. You know, but the truth is, he called the early church to die for their faith, just like he's calling us. Always remember, disobedience is never a valid choice of a child of God. Number three, where should I share my faith? The answer is everywhere. Beginning where you are, it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. 
Let me give this to you. Here's what we do in churches. I've seen this ever since I've been a little kid. We'll write all kinds of checks to send missionaries halfway across the world. We'll say, I'm doing our evangelism responsibility. Should we write checks for people across the world? Yes. But the way it is written in the Greek, it doesn't mean one at a time. It means all at the same time. So it starts in your Jerusalem. Evangelism was never meant to be an event at church. It was meant to be a lifestyle of God's believers. It starts where you live, where you work and you play. That's your Jerusalem. We think about what we do. When I was in seminary, I remember one night I was sitting there going, God, I, I, I really want to play softball really bad. And I said, Lord, give me the worst group of people you can ever imagine. Because I ain't got to play in a while. That, that Saturday morning, I was shagging balls. I was uh, refereeing a ball game for the YMCA. I was shagging balls at short. Throwing them over to first. This guy walks out there. He's hoppling. He busted his knee. He says, man, can you play shortstop? I said, yeah. He said, can you play for our team Tuesday night? I said, sure. And so, so he gave me a phone number and everything. He said, I'll have my coach call you tonight. He got coach called me that night, and his name was John. He said, David, can you show up Tuesday night and play? And I said, yeah, I'll be there. I got there, man, showed up. Those guys said, what do you do? I said, I go to seminary. I'm going to be a preacher. And they all moved on the other side of the bench from me. <laughs> I promise you this is what happened. I said, Lord, put me in the worst place you could possibly put me. But, but the, the, in the second inning, this, this, this pitcher for the other team was about my size. Our catcher weighed almost 300 pounds. He played football somewhere in South Texas. He came around third base and thought he would run over our catcher. He bounced off like a tennis ball, okay? And literally, and, and he tagged him out. Our, our, our catcher was a nice guy, laid his glove down so he could help him up. The guy squanders over and grabs the ball out of the glove, takes two steps back, and chunks our catcher with that ball right in the chest. Our catcher didn't take that very well. Both sides of the bench is cleared. They had to pull him back out. Next inning, that guy's pitching on the mound. Our guy's up to bat. He starts throwing the ball at our guy again. Next thing I know, the guy rushes the mound. Both benches clear again. I, you know, after the game was over, they gave me a, a little piece of paper and said, if you go upstairs, we'll give you all the free beer and pizza you want. And I thought, oh, I'm in the right place. <laughs> I didn't go upstairs and get any of that. I didn't do that. I'm going to say I'm in the right place because I said, Lord, put me exactly in the best fishing hole you can put me in. I mean, cussing, horrible, all this kind of stuff, things like that. Put, put, you, put you there. I mean, guys, third game of the year, I rounded third base, slid into home, hit a guy I didn't mean to, hit the ground, knocked him out. I'm over there going to breathe. When I walk in the bench, all these guys going, that a boy, preacher, kill him, yeah. They all, <laughs> I got to share the gospel with these guys over and over again. Over and over again. Two years later, my daughter was born in a, in a prenatal nursery in Harris Hospital. The first nurse to work on it was a girl named of, of Kathy. Her husband was the coach. She said, David, I've never got to tell you this. She said, but that summer I was afraid that John and I were going to get divorced. See, he was spending more time with his friends, more time away from us. My kids weren't getting a dad. She said, but something happened that summer. She said, now when I work on Sunday mornings, he has her kids at church. He's a different husband, and my, my kids have a different dad. And she said, it started that summer. John and I spent hours talking about Jesus. If you're going to fish, you go where fish are. Guys, we're, we're like, you know, don't put me in there. No, go where fish are. Come on, what do we do in churches? We play in church leagues. Don't, don't play in church leagues. Play in the beer league downtown. Why? Because that's where Jesus would be. He would be where lost people are. We did that the first time. My church looked at me like, you're crazy. I remember we showed up and played the first night. First night, I mean, one of the guys asked me, he said, I know those people, they drink beer and cuss, act terrible. This is no place for me to marry my family. And one of the guys, I looked at one of the guys, I said, you let your family watch TV, don't you? And I went, yeah. I, just, I said, this is like a reality show, right? Yeah. <laughs> the first team we played was a team called the Nasty Boys. 
I want you to know by the end of the year, there are three families off the nasty boys that joined our church and we baptized members of their family. That's what happens when we go fishing. It starts in your Jerusalem. It starts right where you live, you work in place. It starts in your school. It starts where you live. And there's two kind of things to remember. The gospel's inclusive. It's inclusive of all of us. All of us. But it's also individual. I want you to think about this. Who led you to Christ, huh? So an accident. Who had talked to you about it before? Pastor, mom, dad, brother, sister, anybody? Okay. Okay. Pastor, who who helped you come to Christ? Your mother? Okay. Well, who helped you come to Christ? A friend of the family, your grandmother? Okay. Okay. And your grandmother? The pastor? Okay. How many of y'all had a friend lead you to Christ? Help you come to Christ. How many of y'all had a family member share the gospel with you? How many of y'all had a pastor share the gospel with you? Youth minister. Let me ask you something. When you stand before God one day, are all those people going to be with you? No. You're going to stand before God face to face, right? Right before him. Now let me ask you this question. Somebody shared the gospel with you, right? You're here today because somebody shared the gospel with you. You love your pastor, right? You love Pastor Todd here, right? Aren't you glad you have these guys? If someone had never shared the gospel with them, guess what? They wouldn't be here. You know, Billy Graham came to revival in a, in a, uh, in a um, service, Mordecai Ham. He was the only guy saved that night. And Mordecai Ham went back and wrote in his book. He said, some little squiggly little blonde-headed little kid came to Christ. Little did he know that man would have millions and millions of people come to Christ all over the world. Somebody led you to Christ. For me, it was my mom and dad. It was my Sunday school teacher, Mr. Miller. It was so many other people that did that. I get to see, I've taught 34,000 students at Liberty in the last 14 years. Everyone I teach, those people are with me. Guys, who are we to receive the grace of God and deny somebody else that same grace? Did you hear what I said? Who are we to receive the grace and mercy of God and to deny somebody else willfully that same grace and mercy? We, we can't. Number four, what's the point of sharing our faith? What's the point of sharing our faith? Well, the big, big series is, is that Jesus is coming back. Look at it said. He said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way you watched him go into heaven. He'll come back to you. So what he's going to do is come, come back. Do you believe Jesus is coming back, yes or no? Yes. Do we know when he's coming back? No. We don't, do we? Soon, we hope, yeah. But we don't know, do we? We don't know. We don't know the day. We don't know when it is, right? But we know he's coming back, right? So what greater motivation do we need to share the gospel with people than to know that Jesus is coming back? I was in Russia several years ago, back in the 90s. And uh, we, were, we were sharing in these communities and stuff. And in those days, if you were an American and you were in a community, everybody wanted to come see you. They would come up and want to touch you. They want to talk to you and find out what's going on. And one, the last Saturday night we were there, the, the, guy, the pastor I was with took me. And he said, I want, to, I want you to re- meet one of the young pastors we have in the community. He said, he took over this little church out there that was dying, and now it's just flourishing. So we showed up on Saturday night to this church. They took him. When we got there, he introduced me to the pastor. Nobody knew we were coming. We get there. The pastor the, walks me around, shows me the church, shows me downstairs when they were under communist regime. They had double doors where they would worship, where they had dug out literally a cellar downstairs. The walls were dirt, and they had stuck on the walls the names of Jesus. 
That's where they worshiped for the longest time. Now they were free to go upstairs and worship in the auditorium. And that night, I remember, they took us upstairs, and we were sitting in a back room. There were probably 15 men back in that back room. I'm assuming they were all the elders and deacons of the church. None of them knew we were coming. One of the men walks up, and he walks over to my, my, my interpreter, and he says to her something in Russian that I didn't have a clue. I just sat there, you know what you do? You go, that's what I did. Just smiled the whole time. When he walked away, and by the way, my interpreter, two nights before this, she was interpreting the invitation and she looked at me and she said, David, I must go make my confession. She walked down the floor, lay down flat on the floor and surrendered her life to Christ. Wow, it's so cool. <laughs> she just, she's interpreting the gospel and gets saved herself that deep. This, this guy, this guy looks at, looks, says something to her and then he shakes his head and reaches out and shakes my hand and he walks away. And I look at her and I said, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? Listen to this. This is what he said. He said, if we'd have known you were coming, we would have gone and got more people. If we'd have known you were coming, we'd have gone and got more people. So let me ask you a question. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Where are the people? They're across the street from you. You're working with them. You go to school with them. You play football with them. You're cheerleaders with them. You play basketball with them. They go to the nursing home ministry with you. They're in the nursing home. They're teachers. They're doctors. They're lawyers. They're engineers. They're construction workers. All across this community, they're painters. All across this community. And you know them because you've lived here a while. They're in this community. Where are the people? We know he's coming. If we really believe he's coming, how can we possibly sit back and be silent? How can we do that? How can we be so selfish as to say, this is just for me? If you had good news, would you not share it? Think about it. I asked a young lady yesterday. I said, if I promised you I would give you a million dollars, if you went right now and you convinced 20 people over the next hour across this community to come to you to the bank and sign a sheet of paper, and then I would give them all a million dollars apiece too, would you take that? And she said, absolutely. How long would it take you to go start finding those people? She said, right now, I'd run as fast as I could. So I would drag them there. I'd throw them in the car, I'd do whatever I have to. If I had to knock them out, dag them it, that's what I'm gonna do, you know? <laughs> I'm gonna bring them there. Why? Because we want the million dollars, right? The gospel's worth more than a million dollars. This community needs Jesus. Where are the people? I challenge you. Don't ask these youth parents and grandparents to do what we need to be teaching them to do. We need to be the leaders, myself included. I'm 58 years old, granddad. We need to be those leaders. We need to be setting the tone for this community. You can do this if you're willing to. It is the last words of Christ. You will be my witnesses. Are we willing to take the challenge? Think about it. If Jesus is coming back, and if he is the only way to salvation, if the gospel is biblically true, how can we rationalize being silent with eternity in the balance? This must drive the future of the church. Would you bow your heads with me right now, please?